0: Hi, I'm Trevor Elio,
1: and I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world.
0: From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Our guest this week is Darren Cambridge, a facilitator and experiential educator of nonviolent practice. With everything happening in our world today, it's a timely discussion. Of course, the issue of structural racism and discrimination isn't new, but the recent murder of George Floyd has shown a spotlight on the injustices these systems perpetuate. As someone who's devoted their life and career to studying the ways nonviolence can be a powerful form of action and activism, Darren is an incredible resource on its history and methodology. What spoke to me most during our conversation was Darren's commitment to the idea that nonviolence and activism more broadly should be anchored in love. Love as an important part of relationship building inside and outside the classroom is a notion that has become a bit of a theme on the podcast. Darren continues that trend by detailing how nonviolence is a tool in helping create what Dr. King called the beloved community.
2: Well, so Dr. King referred to something as the beloved community, which I think sometimes is like an elusive word that sounds good, but people are like, "What, what does that actually mean?" And for years, even in this space, in the nonviolent, you know, action space, it, it was a word that I would always use, but I'm like, I don't even really know if I fully understand what the beloved community means. So just talking with lots of people who um, have been on the front lines of of movements and have been studying this, the concept is that nonviolence is about creating a world where everyone can live up to their potential. And acts of violence are when someone's potential is not allowed to flourish or blossom or actualize. And the beloved community is is a, is a moment and is a time and is a goal where, wherever we are, we know that everyone in that space is living up to their potential.
0: With many young people's rising interest in community and anti-racist activism, this episode will provide a ton of tools and insight on how people can organize and advocate for change in meaningful, impactful ways. As we mentioned in the episode, there's a big difference between merely adopting the aesthetics of activism and racial justice and working to make it a reality. We hope you'll enjoy. Our guest today is Darren Cambridge, an educational creative producer and facilitator who has cultivated his career in the field of peace building, international education, nonviolent action, civics education and engagement, and community organizing. We're glad to have you, Darren.
2: Good. Thanks for having me here.
0: Awesome. So to kick us off, can you start to us about how you facilitate learning experiences about nonviolence?
2: Yeah, so I think um, one thing that I've always held true to in terms of facilitation with nonviolence or any topic for that matter is that it's experiential, Mm. Um, meaning that we start with and leverage the experiences of the participants that they're Mm. bringing into that space. Um, And yeah, I mean, experimenting with those, um, recognizing that there's a lot of knowledge that already exist within those who have come to quote learn something
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that a lot of the learning and discovery of whatever topic should really come from them. And mm-hmm. my role as a facilitator in many ways is to set up opportunities and spaces where that discovery can occur and then kind of get out of the way. Mm-hmm. I think the more that those aha moments or those insights, those contributions come from the voices of the people in that space, the more successful I deem myself to be as a facilitator.
1: And uh, I just want to share for our listeners that Darren and I met many, many years ago at the Close-Up Foundation where we did civic education together. Um, And then sort of you went on to get your master's degree in peace studies and nonviolent action. And, and I think, are you still an adjunct professor at American university?
2: Yeah. So I Uh, I took a little bit of a hiatus from that, uh but then I'm now returning back in October actually. So. Okay.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, you know, just for me, the idea of nonviolence, you know, I, as a kid, I studied the civil rights movement. You sort of learned basics of, it was almost like a comparison of Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X. And that was just sort of this comparison that people made. Of course, now the idea of nonviolence is back into the mainstream sort of uh, lexicon and making us think about it. And I also read this book by Mark, I believe, Mark Kalon, called. Nonviolence: the history of a dangerous idea and I just yeah, remember yeah. thinking wow that that subtitle is so cool I have to I have to pick up this book um and so if you could tell our audience what are sort of what are the three words we always like to on this podcast sort of boil things down so if we had to boil down nonviolence to three words you shared with us before we started recording but I'd like you to share with our listeners now what are your three words
2: yeah so I thought long and hard about this mm-hmm. not an easy <laughs> task but the three that I that I settled on were one planning mm-hmm. Two, discipline, and three, love.
1: Love, wow, that's so cool because we had a previous guest uh, who talked about love as well. We kind of unpacked love on one of our last podcasts. So I just, <laughs> I, I think it's really cool that we have another person who has that, that word. Um, so let's start with planning. Why is that a concept and what does sort of that mean for you?
2: So that kind of resonated at the top for me because when I, like you, Julie, grew up, you know, learning about the civil rights movement, maybe some other nonviolent struggles, but mostly the civil rights movement and going into college felt like I was pretty informed about it. Mm -hmm. And I took a class called the geography of peace. This was my junior year, I believe, of college, undergraduate school. And um, in that class, we read a book called A Force More Powerful. And then there's a documentary series also called A Force More Powerful. That chronicles the history and stories of nonviolent movements throughout the 20th century. So it looks at everything from Danish resistance to Nazi occupation during World War II, um, obviously India's independent struggle against the British Empire, uh, part- anti apartheid movement in South Africa, and the civil rights movement, et cetera, et cetera. So when we read the chapter and we watched the episode on the civil rights movement, that's when I had this mind blowing kind of learning experience where I recognized that I didn't really didn't really know that much about the civil rights movement and, and, um, and nonviolent action. What I learned was that when we, the collective, we, I think generally most people learn about the civil rights movement, they look at moments. They look at, um, you know, there's images, there's footage of there are these people in the streets demonstrating, and this is happening, or there are these people sitting at a lunch counter and this is happening and something happened and then there's some type of result. But what you don't see because it's not that sexy to film it or report on it is all the planning that went into all those moments that made those possible. So I'm reading this book of course more powerful and I'm learning about a man named Reverend James Lawson, who is a Methodist minister that Dr. King referred to as the mind of the movement. So we all know about Dr. King and he was like, you know, the leader, one of the leaders of the civil rights struggle. There are many others, obviously, that put all of this stuff in, into action and strategizing. And Reverend Lawson was, was like the guy. He had actually gone, took a steamership to India in the mid fifties. Um, and many black intellectuals and theologians had actually traveled to India because they were curious about what did Indians do alongside Gandhi to get rid of the British empire. Um, and those back in the United States, building the civil rights struggle said this is a method that we want to try and use, but we want to know more about it. So when Reverend Lawson returned, he was one of those individuals, those black intellectuals um that Dr. King reached out to and said, come and, and teach us and all of our activists about the history and the strategy of, of nonviolent action. Anyway, point being that um when I watched this documentary and the the episode was about the Nashville lunch counter sit-ins is that there were like weeks and months of planning that went into that campaign. Everything from not just sitting at lunch counters, but the decision to sit at lunch counters and having that be the quote unquote battlefield where they were going to wage struggle against institutionalized racism. And that started all the way back with, organizers and activists coming into Nashville, that was not necessarily their town, but their organizers, they come there and say, all right, we need to understand how people in this town in this moment are living, breathing, experiencing, and how they're feeling the impact of institutionalized racism and segregation. I mean, it was everywhere. So you could have, you could see it in movie theaters and restaurants and businesses and et cetera, et cetera. And so they would have like, like days and days of listening sessions with people in the community who lived in Nashville. And they would all share, here is how I am experiencing racism in this city. And everyone would share, they would bear witness. And Reverend Lawson, uh, I've I've worked with him, he's still alive. I've worked with him and and, uh, at a previous job. And he has told me this story because it doesn't appear in the documentary. But um, it has stuck with me is that he goes, it was in these listening sessions where it became clear to us that the battlefield where we were going to wage nonviolent struggle against racism was the lunch counters. And the reason that came up was because it was when women and mothers stood up at these listening sessions and said, you know where I experience racism most and it is the most hurtful is when I take my hard-earned money, my family's hard-earned money, I go to a department store. I give them that money so I can buy clothes and shoes and other things for my house and my family. I've been on my feet all day, and I am not offered the dignity and respect to sit down at a lunch counter and have a cup of coffee. Everybody else's, every other white woman, every other white mother who's there has that, is given that respect, but as a black woman, I'm not. And Reverend Lawson said in that session, you could see everyone being like, wow, of all the experiences that people have shared, this one just was this ripple effect across the room because everyone has a mother and the idea of a mother being disrespected when they're trying to provide for their family and they're not able to sit down. People were like, that's where we're going to go. That's our first step because there were, there was enough energy around that as a battlefield that people could rally around. So the planning came around just listening to people. It wasn't just one day, 15 kids decided to just sit at the lunch counter because they were pissed off. No, there was like a whole listening session behind that. Then after they decided, all right, we're going to go and engage in civil disobedience at the lunch counters. You don't just make that decision and then get up and sit there. You sit down and realize, okay, here's what could potentially happen when we do this and let's actually figure out and role play how we're going to respond when the police show up, when racist thugs show up and start yelling at us, spitting on us, you know, punching us, physically abusing us. Here's what happens when we potentially get taken to jail. Um, you need to think about how you're going to function in those situations before you're put in that situation in real life. So the documentary does show these these um, workshops in these church basements where these young people are, figuring out, all right, what do we do if this happens? What do you do if this happens? It's Just like the military. You aim out all these situations so that when you're in there for real, you have already created some type of mental response and physical response around, all right, if this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. So for me, that was mind blowing because I realized there is a military-like planning and strategizing that goes into waging a nonviolent campaign. From mm. the sit ins to the bus boycott to the freedom rides, mm. to present day struggles against, you know, uh, fighting climate change and all these mm. things, it's not just random acts of nonviolence. They are planned.
1: I love that. There's so much swirling through my mind. But I think what you just said reminded me of what's in that Krolansky book about um, that. You you have there's no there's no real word in the English language for nonviolence because it's not quite the same thing as peace. I do you, you just jog my memory because it's been a, several years since I read that book. Um, because, and that's kind of why because we first sort of approached you, we said well, you could either talk about peace studies or nonviolence, and I said I want to talk about nonviolence because it's it's slightly different than peace. Um, the peace is sort of the absence of violence, and nonviolence. I love that you make this. Uh, Connection to being as disciplined and as planned out and and as much foresight and forethought as the military is super interesting. And you sort also you connected the idea of planning and the listening sessions to what you originally started out as a facilitator, you're always trying to go in and listen to the knowledge that your participants bring to any training session. I could definitely get better at that. Listeners, I know that's a space (laughs) I can grow in um, of of doing more of those sort of listening sessions and and taking people's knowledge as they come into our workshop settings. So I love that. I think probably what is the big shift, if you're saying planning, discipline, I don't know if we want to talk a little bit more about this one because you already did, but I, I imagine the big shift between the military and nonviolence is your third concept, which is love. Mm-hmm. Um and so where where why did you settle on that word? On love. Yeah.
2: Well, so Dr. King re- referred to something as the beloved community, which mm-hmm. I think sometimes is like an elusive um word that sounds good but people are like what what does that actually mean and for years even in this space in the nonviolent, you know action space it it was a word that I would always use but I'm like I don't even really know if I fully understand what the beloved community means so just talking with lots of people who um, have been on the front lines of of movements and have been studying this um, the concept is that for me the way I understand it is that Nonviolence is about a, creating a world where everyone can live up to their potential. And acts of violence are when someone's potential is not allowed to flourish or blossom or, or actualize. And the beloved community is a, is, a, is a moment and is a time and is a goal where wherever we are, we know that everyone in that space is living up to their potential. Um, And so that's, I think the beloved, the love part of the beloved community is is part of that. The other reason that I settle in love too is that, um, and we're seeing it now with movements, Black Lives Matter movement, um, movements for racial justice. There's a lot of righteous indignation in the face of the injustices that people, predominantly Black people, face in this country at the hands of police. And you see folks in the streets very angry, very upset. And initially, people might look at that, depending on what anger you're looking at, it, as, as, oh, these people are angry, and that's a negative thing. No, actually, people are angry because they, they have so much love for their brothers and sisters. They have so much love for their community. So to see people treated that way, the love, is actually expressing itself in what folks see on television that comes out as anger. But it's not anger out of, uh, maybe part of it is out of hatred, but I think the root of that when we're talking about nonviolence is you have so much love for your people Mm. or for your community that you develop this righteous indignation. And that Mm. is the fuel that allows people to do the planning, be Mm. disciplined, put themselves at risk um, because they realize they wanna get to that, the beloved community.
0: Uh, I love that idea of love as fuel to contribute and lead to um, both discipline and what was the, uh, and planning, um, <clears throat> and the the sort of motivating factor. And I think that you also talk a lot about this idea of community, which is something that I feel like is kind of absent from a lot of the discussion that I see when it comes to um, whether it's, it's protest or nonviolence, because we live in such a globalized world and we, we take in so much and see so much of the things that are happening through our screens, this idea that we can begin or should even begin um, our, our work in a community where we, you know, are aware of the people in that community, the norms of that community, the sort of like cultural context. Um, so can you talk about the, the importance of sort of anchoring or centering that love, discipline, and planning in a community space?
2: Yeah, so uh, this reminded me of one of my former colleagues at the US Institute of Peace, um, Jackie Wilson. She said something that I think speaks to this, which is as an organizer, as an activist, or someone in this more globalized world, as you described it, when you're addressing an injustice or you're fighting for a cause at a local or community level, you as an organizer can plant a seed, but that seed can only grow with the sunlight that shines in that community and the water that rains in that community. Wow. Once you leave, that's what it relies on. Mm. So if you don't have the buy-in or you don't have the passion from that community, you can plant a seed, but it's not going to do anything. And so, yeah, that sunlight, that water, that rain has to come from that local local community. And um, however you frame a struggle or whatever tactics or strategies you might um, work with the community to plan and implement uh they have to be all in on it otherwise it's, it's not going to go anywhere mm. uh,
1: when you mentioned about the love for your 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 neighbor your your brother your fellow uh person of color for in this example that you gave um sort of causes this rage it did make me make some parallels to the military actually because there there is this fraternal um sort of brotherhood among all the people that i know in the military so that that's super interesting because i ended up i initially thought that was different and then when you talked more about it i thought oh wait no it's it's more it's more similar than i previously thought so i really appreciate that i'm wondering if um you shared all this you know, backstory of the civil rights movement and this you know, going to India, things of, things of that nature, either with Black Lives Matter or any other modern day issue. Do you see people seeping themselves in nonviolent um, sort of philosophy and action? Do you see them sort of doing the, sa- the same level of rigorous training about, about movements that have gone before them? Um, do you see it as organized or as, as much of uh, a, a piece of this strategy? Yeah,
2: I think so. I do. And um, I think that a lot of the challenges that these movements face are around the portrayal of them that is oftentimes out of their control. And the civil mm-hmm. rights movement and movements, even not just civil rights mm-hmm. movement, other movements have always struggled mm-hmm. with this, is that They might be planning and they might have these principles and the Mm -hmm. vast majority of people may be on board with a certain approach, Mm -hmm. but what gets covered and how it's portrayed to everybody else is something very different mm-hmm. um so yeah obviously now in hindsight dr king is like this great guy and he's got this big monument in dc but you know the years leading up to his assassination he was like one of the least popular men in the united 100%. states
1: he, he was up by the fbi i think most really? people don't know that uh but <laughs> because we we sort of have this picture of him that now is super cuddly but uh, no he was he was very much watched by by the federal government um yeah. that's something very that good, i think yeah really-
2: and, and I think that there's also a critique that at least maybe I'm able to kind of read be- between the lines. But when, um, you know, for example, here in D.C., there was last week, the mayor, Muriel Bowser, um, had Black Lives Matter written on 16th Street leading up mm-hmm. to the White House in huge yellow letters and then changed the street name that's in front of the White House to Black Lives Matter Plaza. Mm-hmm. And great images that were on social media and in the newspapers and things like that um but the local black lives matter chapter was like this ain't it um this is performative um playing to the media but if you look at the mayor's budget um it is actually not in line with what black lives matter is asking for in your own community so go ahead and paint it on the streets but it's not going to mean anything to us unless you change the budget that is actually increasing funding for police um, and not putting those resources into other community organizations that uplift communities of color as opposed to criminalize them. So that debate will get hashed out and what will happen will happen. But seeing that critique of like, no, it's not enough just to like do a big splash and have something that is quite performative. So look, personally, I think it's great. I mean, I love those images. It was like very empowering to see that. And I think an interesting tactic by the mayor, but then those who are really like on the front lines doing the organizing work every single day, they're coming with that essential critique, um, which I think for me does demonstrate: no, we have a longer-term strategy here, and victory is not Black Lives Matter written on 16th Street or renaming of a of of this street into a plaza into Black Lives Matter Plaza. It's actually fundamental change in policy, and here's how we're going to do that, and continue to pressure. On decision makers until we get what we want um and also it's not a three-day three-week or even three-year process move significant social change takes a lot of time um and so it's a constant constant effort and it's baby steps sometimes it's two steps forward one step back one step forward two steps back it, it is that and and i think there is a level of patience that these movements are exhibiting and the the three-legged approach to creating social change that King talked about is like, you've got the direct action, which is you're out in the streets, you're doing the nonviolent civil disobedience, you're protesting, all these other nonviolent tactics, you're directly attacking the issue at hand, got the legislative um, or political angle where you lean on um, lawmakers. You run for office. You enter into the political game and change that landscape. And then you've got the judicial and the legal strategy, where you go to the courts, um, you get those um, cases through the system, um, you appoint certain justices, or you get those cases up to um, you know appeals courts and things like that. So um, I, I'm you know the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements after a while of direct action, realize, all right, we've got to start putting people on, you know, on, on the ballot and we've got to start getting people elected. And I'm, I'm starting to see that. So I think there is, uh, you know, definitely people who've been studying how these social movements work.
0: That term performative is one that I've been thinking a lot about lately, especially with everything happening with COVID and and people, their ability to interact and engage with the movement in a wider context often is digital. And as so much more of, you know, the human experience is becoming sort of mediated by our screens, um, I just think it's sort of, I could see how that would kind of warp our understanding of what actually changes things and gets things done, right? We see images that communicate to us, changes are being made, right? Like you said, like this, this grand image of like the Black Lives Matter um, on 16th Street, but like, it's the image of change without the actual policy to, to support it. And I think that that's, that's such a, a complex but important thing to point out and I'm, I'm even wondering how much of the way that we teach history is affecting that as well because what you see in the textbook right is people linking arms again like, you know, arm-in arm marching down the street right? it's it's these great moments right or these great these great often men um, you know it's like the great man theory of history where like Martin Luther King by himself put you know and it's it's kind of distracting from the thing that I think might even be more powerful to learn from, which is all the work behind the scenes that individuals did in order to, to contribute to this wider movement. So what are some things and, and maybe some steps or some trends you've been seeing that point to people realizing, I think you just kind of started to give an example there, of like the, the real power and influence of, of policy and policy that's anchored in a community and has like sort of a targeted um, aim to really change um, our, our you know system of white supremacy as it is?
2: Yeah, well, I think the whole defund police, which, you know, people can critique that however they want, whether it's what they're actually calling for or the slogan for it, um, which I think some people find confusing or what have you. There's some interesting conversation going on around that, but that's very much a community-based effort. I mean, policing um, and any consequences that police make are a very much a local decision. And so there's a lot of efforts around greater attention being given to very local elections county supervisors mayors district attorneys things like that that even for myself it's like i couldn't name any of them in my own community as we sit here today right Right. now if i lived in a community that was constantly being over policed i would like to think that i would pay more attention to that but i think that's something that is a shift that i'm starting to notice as i follow this primarily through social media um -hmm. is that there is this emphasis of like hey elections are coming up you are angry because you have so much love for your community, here's how you can actually shape your community through your voice. Those, those mechanisms are there, it's just, you know, in some ways people are discouraged from participating in them. Um, so going back to just the defund the police, not I'm not a spokesperson for it at all, but my, my, my basic understanding of it is that so much money is put towards police forces um, that are trained to engage with communities in a certain way. They're part of a system, um, a criminal justice system. And systems reinforce themselves. And so if you know, if it's about fighting crime and locking up criminals or apprehending criminals or this and that, then you will make those up. You'll create them so that the system exists. Um, if you shift some of that funding to organizations, as I said earlier, that uplift communities as opposed to criminalize them, there's no shortage of organizations, be they nonprofit, faith-based, community-based, that are there to address some of the issues that, um, that uh, harm communities or that communities struggle with that too often are handled by the police, whether it's mental health or poverty and homelessness or, um, you know, issues in the home, that police are not trained to deal with those things. And I think you would probably find many police officers who are like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, and I have training to do X, Y, and Z, but X, Y, and Z is not fit to deal with A, B, and C. When there are many organizations that are, um, where people are trained to deal with A, B, and C, and if they had actually more funding, have a greater reach, it's balancing out how cities and municipalities decide how that money is spent. And I think the time has finally come where that is being articulated in as clear of a way as possible. Um, and hopefully we'll see some change over the next you know, five or so years
1: that's right. It's really about the social safety net. That's what I try to try to emphasize to people who hear the phrase defund the police and they get really scared. Um, it's about, it's about a, a social safety net that people shouldn't have to choose between medicine and food. Um, for example, and then they're going to, re- if you have to choose between medicine and food, you're going to resort to some, some shady things in order to to sort of have both, uh, that that's, that's basic human, human need. Um, but I want to go back to you saying sort of that love is, is this? I'm 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 forgetting exactly what you said. The opportunity to realize your potential. Is that what you said it was? Yeah, yeah. Um, and about the I would do want to just add a little insert about the defund the police. The best article I've read was by a, a Georgetown professor in the Washington Post, and I can't remember the name of the article or the name of the, the the person who wrote it. But you could probably Google listeners Washington Post Georgetown professor defund the police. I think it was called defund the police. What it what it means and what it doesn't. Um, and so that was a really great article. But going back to this idea of love and the opportunity to realize your potential Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to because a lot of our listeners are teachers as like a parent because you're a parent as as a facilitator um, what are some ways in which we um, maybe unconsciously behave in a more violent way and what are some some things that you have become more conscious of um, after studying sort of nonviolence? some things that that maybe I, I haven't thought of
2: yeah, so we use violent words all the time. Mm. There's a lot of analogies, phrases, and sayings that talk about, you know, oh, you're killing it, or mm. kill two birds with one stone. Mm. It normalizes words that create harm and pain. Mm. And mm. so when you hear that, you know, all the time, I think it just it lessens what that actually means. Mm. Um, so I never say kill two birds with one stone. I always mm. say hatch two birds from one egg the same idea but Mm -hmm. it's about giving life it's about giving Mm -hmm. birth it's not about extinguishing life or or killing anything
0: Mm -hmm.
2: um and you know at least right now it's enough of a shift where people will ask the question like oh that's interesting and so it opens potentially up a quick little conversation around Mm -hmm. you know let's make an analogy that's life-giving and life-affirming as opposed to killing it so Mm
1: -hmm.
2: um so that's one thing um i think there's also just being real with kids to whatever age they may be. And now there's developmentally appropriate ways to uh, introduce certain concepts to Mm -hmm. kids. But Mm -hmm. I think you both would agree that kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And they're able to be introduced to complex, uh, scary um, concepts at a much earlier age. And so when it comes to what it means to kill something or to die, um, we can be real about that—that that someone's heart stops and they stop breathing—and um, as opposed to just kind of like, oh, they move on or they go to sleep forever or something like that. It's like, no, this is death and killing, like me. Um, we can talk about what it means when someone is losing a family member um, because, again, they are in armed conflict and you know something along those lines. I had I interviewed somebody actually for another podcast. And this is a perfect example. He um, was one of the original organizers and founders of uh, Earth Day. So back Mm -hmm. in 1970, I believe it was, you need to go back and look at it. But anyway, he told the story about um, when his sons were in middle school, I think. Uh, And this was during the first Iraq War, Gulf, um, yeah, the first Iraq War. And his sons had come home and that day at school, I guess it had been announced Norman Schwarzkopf or whatever. uh, George, the first Bush was like, Oh, we're victorious. Like we have defeated Saddam Hussein or whatever. So his sons come home and they get out of the car, they get off the bus or whatever. And they're like, dad, dad, like we won, we won. Like, isn't that great? They're celebrating that America won this war and he didn't, mirror back that excitement and joy and celebration of winning a war. He was like, well, winning, like, let's talk about that. So he goes inside and he goes, okay, boys, I want you to um, take out, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but he's like, how many uh, people, how many soldiers died in this war? And he's like, oh, you don't know? We'll we'll look it up. Oh, you know, it was, you know, uh, you know, 500 or, a thousand or something. And he's like, okay, I want you to take out this bag of rice and each grain of rice is 10 people. And so I want you to measure out with your spoon um, the amount of people that died as a result of this. And so they did that and they put it on the table. And then he goes, now how many Iraqis died in this conflict? And it was in the tens of thousands. And they had to then measure out on the spoon again with that and had to look at those two piles and every single grain of sand was 10 mothers or 10 fathers or 10 sons or 10 daughters, many of whom were not actually on the battlefield. These are, you know, civilian casualties. And, you know, for me, I was like, that was really powerful that he shared that because I think if more people, if teachers and parents were able to like put that reality in front of kids at a young age to temper that celebration of and realize that every life matters um, and the loss of life will hurt somebody, many people in many different ways and have this ripple effect, it makes it much more difficult for us to then readily go into another another conflict. So I think those are you know, some of the ways I think that we can better prepare young people to think in the mindset of nonviolence, because sure, there are moments where you need to fight. Like that was mm-hmm. the other thing about learning about nonviolence is like if you are being disrespected, you are living under intolerable conditions and you are being oppressed. No, you don't just sit there and take it um, or mm-hmm. turn the other cheek, as they say. Mm-hmm. You have every right to say, I will not accept this in my life. I will not accept this for people that I love and I will fight mm-hmm. back.
0: The mm-hmm. question
2: is, how do you fight back? Mm-hmm. And nonviolence mm-hmm. is a way to wage struggle that does mm-hmm. not rely on hurting harming other people that have these long-term ripple
1: effects. Wow. Thank you for clarifying that because that's enormous. I think many people think uh, myself included that nonviolence is yeah, like the opposite of violence. It is a, it is a method for fighting for what you want. Um, and so I think that that's a really good, important clarification. And you're reminding me of sharing that story um, just for a four and six year old perspective, my little boys, um, they, I, 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 joke with my parents. I'm like, my kids are Buddhist. Because I talk about how things are, this is a living thing. A moth is a living thing. An ant is a living thing. And I do have those conversations with them. So where now we saw a silverfish in in the bedroom the other day. Those little tiny insects. I would have just smashed it. But they're like, mom, (laughs) don't kill it. And I have to go get a piece of toilet paper. And I'm like carefully scooping up this silverfish and bringing it outside. Little tiny spiders. Even we found some ants in this house. And they were like, mom, don't kill it bring it outside. So I like carefully scoop up this little ant because otherwise my kids will start crying. Um, but it it just, it does go to show how it is innate to care for living things. Um, and if we foster that, wow, just imagine what, what kind of a world it was. And so, so even in my busy, busy life right now, it takes me way more time to scoop up an ant and carefully bring it outside. Um, But I want to nurture that in my boys, especially two little boys. I'm very conscious of them um, being there. They're quite naturally aggressive, um, and so I'm very conscious of them trying to nurture those moments of gentleness. That I think is 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 really great. No,
0: can you talk to us about the importance of, I guess, maybe the the language of anti violence, the language of activism? Because I'm kind of picking that up as as a through line through all of this because it stuck out to me, this idea that, you know, we were victorious, right, mm. in the, in the, in the mm. Gulf War. What is victory, right? What does that look like? And mm. I, I think um, love, right? Love is this, is this thing um, that we hear and it feels rather trite, right? Like something from a Hallmark card. Um, in uh, Bell Hook's essay, Love is a Practice of Freedom, she's basically like, love has kind of been dismissed by a lot of people as this sort of like soft mm. thing. And it mm. seems to me, like there's a lot of value in really interrogating some of these concepts. I mean, what Julie was kind of talking about, like, what is a living thing, right? Like, we think sentient human beings, right? But, Mm. you know, to to her kids, a living thing is is anything that can die, and there's value in caring for that. Um, And even thinking about King, right? The beloved community. No matter who you are, it's really hard to be, oh, I'm not not for a beloved community, right? Just the language of that is something that every person um, could and should, and and I think would uh, aspire to. So can you kind of talk to us um, about like the, the language of activism or of anti-violence and the importance of of the words that we use to describe uh, the things that we're doing.
2: Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I, I even like your phrasing of, of anti-violence, um, you know, versus non-violence, because I, oh, yeah, I no, no, but I, it, it's telling actually, because I've I've never actually heard that, but there's a good conversation now about being or not
0: racist. Right. Yeah. I eight. think that my brain was conflating. Yeah. And- yeah. No. Mm-hmm. So
2: it's like, I had not really thought about it that way because there's, there's actually a lot of discussion and debate around the term nonviolence.
1: Mm-hmm, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I
2: used to work for an organization that, um, was called the international center on nonviolent conflict.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: when I worked there, we were essentially forbidden from using the word nonviolence. Wow. It, um, we much preferred to use terms like civil resistance, um, nonviolent action, people power, um, popular struggle. These were words that when people hear them are more likely to see it and understand it as a struggle, as a strategic way to engage in conflict. As opposed to nonviolence, sometimes it does conjure up probably maybe more like religious or faith-based like ways of life Mm. that are not necessarily Connected to waging a civil resistance struggle, so you know, obviously, I, I don't work there anymore, um, and I I still like the word nonviolence because I I appreciate not just nonviolence as a method of struggle, but also as a way of life. I mean, it goes mm-hmm. to the point you were just talking about with how you raise your kids. Um, yeah, we can be nonviolent in waging, you know, in, in engaging the social movement, but there's all these other personal decisions that we make. As individuals, as partners, as parents, as teachers, that can also adhere to nonviolence. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway, um, and then when it comes to love, you know, there are multiple. Like the Greeks had multiple words to define or describe different types of love. Um, in the English language, we don't really have that. So when we think of romantic love, yeah that that's what people initially go to when they say love, they think about romantic love and it can mm-hmm. kind of seem like, you know, like weak or like you said, weak, soft, anemic or whatever. But the Greeks also had a word called like agape, um, which is love for your fellow human being as a brother and sister. It's not romantic love. Um, they also had um, like platonic love, which is like love of friends. So there's no romantic connection there. So the Greeks were, their language allowed them to speak about love in these various like gradations of it. But the English language don't have that. Now, I don't, I don't know if other languages have other versions of it, but when we're talking about the beloved community, we are talking about agape or that love that you have f- at, for other human beings, for being human beings. Um, and it's very different than the romantic kind kind of love. So there's that confusion there. And maybe, maybe at some point there'll be uh, a new word that, that captures that in the English language. But right now, I think that's, that's a big, big struggle that people, people have.
1: Well, speaking of sort of the syntax and, and where you used to work, you've been, you've been sort of in this field, in this space, uh, for quite some time, where could people go? Where could people go first of all, to find you, but where could people go, um, to, to find more about like this idea?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, for, um, to learn more about this, I would definitely recommend, I mentioned earlier, A Force More Powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a the book
2: and then there's also the documentary series. The documentary series, I will say, happy to say that it's actually available for free on YouTube. So you nice. can just search a Force More Powerful and all six episodes are about 18, 20 minutes each. Um, and that was an award-winning documentary that ran on PBS for like many years. So that's not available for free on YouTube. And that's a great place to start because they have all this like firsthand like footage and interviews of individuals that we all should know about, but don't necessarily get the recognition in your like mainstream textbooks. So like folks like Reverend Lawson that I'd never heard of before, but now he's probably like the biggest influence in my life. Um, and I you know that started there with that book. So Force More Powerful is, is I think a good place to to start. Um, I also think just reading all of King's works. So King gave a lot of great speeches, but he also wrote many books. Um, and you know, you just go on to whatever your Kindle or Amazon or your local library and look up Dr. King and just, I think that's where a lot of the richness of not only his evolution of thinking and this whole concept of nonviolence. I mean, he was a theologian, like he was an intellectual, like brilliant guy. And that comes out in these books. So it's it's that intellectual exploration of nonviolence, beloved community, those things that we've been talking about. It's also the best firsthand account of what was happening from the Montgomery bus boycott that really elevated him to this leadership status all the way, um, you know, for, for many years down the road. So I think just read his works um and don't necessarily rely on other people to tell you what he thought i mean he wrote it all down in in many books and i don't think a lot of people realize that
0: yeah i i feel like i see a lot of quotes get bandied about i've seen a lot from him uh and james baldwin uh, on my timeline uh depending on you know the person posting i think the framing of those quotes is really interesting um and there's so much to be gained like you said, to dig into the work of these great thinkers and really explore it. And, and something that I love that I kind of was just putting together is, is we're talking about love as this like sort of intellectual practice, right? And I think that we have a tendency to create these, these sort of binaries, right? Like, you know, the, you're thinking with your head or your heart, and, and it mm. sounds like um, nonviolence uh, is, is a combination of, of the two. We must um, love our neighbor in a radical way, but we also must think and be strategic about you know how we engage in creating policies and um, platforms that will you know be able to create a beloved community. So yes. yeah, thank you. Thanks for kind of giving me that that little insight. My brain has just def- definitely been worrying throughout this conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I wanted to to point out back to your your our conversation about defund the police. Uh, a quick check for our listeners. I taught I taught in in an urban school. Um, Darren, you know, at Teaser Chavez, and I just sort of did this quick little count in my head. I had never done it before until you started talking about defund the police where I said, okay, we had um, five or six disciplinarian staff and, and one or two, we had two, um, not always there at the same time, but we, we had two police resource officers um, on the school campus and we had two social workers. Um, and so that's just a, a very clear example there of where the, where the balance of salaries is going at a school um, is going to the discipline staff who really just gave kids attention, suspended them, things of that nature. And there was only two people who were uh, having those conversations about, about trauma, about mental health and things of that nature. So I think it's for, for our listeners to do a quick check, how many sort of disciplinarian employees are at your school and how many more mental health and other support staff, um, are at your school. I think that's a great, a great conversation for teachers to be and and principals to be having right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll share one thing. So I, I, I serve on the board of an organization based here in D.C. called One Common Unity. And you touched on a lot of things that we do in every D.C. public high school, many middle schools Mm -hmm. as well, Mm -hmm. which is um, there are students that are facing certain levels of trauma. There is a disciplinary approach that actually harms or increases harm to the student's life and well-being. And without any alternatives there to replace those, you know, many schools will continue uh, on a practice that maybe seems to be working to a certain extent. But so the example I want to give is that one community, not in all schools, but in some schools, they've instituted intention rooms. So not mm. detention rooms, but intention rooms, which are basically mm. a space that the school allowed one community to come in and have this dedicated space where students could engage in mindfulness practices. So you know, you both know that students walk into a school and walk into a classroom carrying all sorts of things that happened outside of that school and outside of that classroom. And those are many of those things are completely out of our control. Um, so having school or having classroom, having a space in a school that can help actually young people process, intentionally process some of those things that they're grappling with, which are very serious issues, mental health issues. Um you know, you're not setting them up for success if those spaces aren't there, and if that support isn't there. So, one community also just recently became a certified health, uh, mental health provider. So, we provide mental health support and counseling for young people throughout um, DCPS, and that just in the last year, because everyone realizes, and is realizing more and more every day that mental health is just as important as physical health. And um, so, there, I think there are. Trends where and it goes back to actually what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, Julie, around um, peace, and that sure, some conceptions of peace are negative, meaning mm. the absence of violence. Mm. The other aspect of peace is a positive. So mm-hmm. instead of in the absence of something like crime or bullying or mm-hmm. abuse or whatever, it's the presence, peace, positive peace is the presence mm-hmm. of things that actually create um, well-being, you know, social um, connection, and things like that. And that's where the positive piece thing comes in. Like you, uh, designing and having and making available an intention room in a school is a positive piece approach to addressing Mm -hmm. um, violence or disruption or whatever you're experiencing versus the negative piece approach is have more security staff and up Mm -hmm. the detentions. Mm-hmm. Take the quote unquote problem student and remove them from the mm-hmm. school. And mm-hmm. then they are absent from that as opposed mm-hmm. to inserting something new that, that is more of a positive piece approach. Yeah. Well,
1: well, love it. What I think is, is w- what's happening now with of course, coronavirus and uh, just more examples of, of race, racial discrimination, extraordinary uh, deaths are happening and the protest etc it seems like the world is broken but I feel like you're leaving us with an optimistic approach that that um, I think that the coronavirus and, and all of these things are forcing these conversations to the forefront um, they were sort of always on busy administrators to-do lists for example in schools and things like that but you know what tests got can- testing big high stakes testing got canceled um, a lot of things I'm sure that are still very stressful right now but I think I see teachers demanding conversations about well-being, well-being for themselves, which is super important, and well-being for their students. Um, and so I love that. I hope, I hope our listeners will take some, some hope from, from your message as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, I definitely am, am taking some hope too. Um, and the other thing I'm, I'm kind of thinking about is how it seems like whether it's nonviolence or, uh, you know, having intention rooms, all of these things are about a, exploring the root of problems and not just sort of uh, brushing them off and B, it's the long game, right? It takes so much longer to build a culture of acceptance and love than it does to stamp out, you know, the, the, the symptoms of that mm-hmm. disease, which is, you know, like misbehavior or, or whatever. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you giving us some hope in this time. And, and if people want to find more uh, out about your work uh, specifically and other ways you are helping uh, foster hope, uh, where would they go?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I have my own personal website called, it's just DarrenCambridge.com, I believe, um, D-A-R-Y-N, <laughs> cambridge.com. It's a little out of date. Um, I haven't been updating it as much as I was like, many years ago. So in terms of like my own personal, like, you know, um, moments of growth as a facilitator or a peace educator or and organizer, um, some of those, those reflections are um, from years past. Mm-hmm. Um its actually one of my big regrets that I haven't been really good about that, the, the old art of God. But I do want to reference that um, you know just um, if folks are just more interested in kind of my journey. Um, another great website is um, uh, peacelearner.org. Um, and that is a website that I created many, many years ago when I was teaching a peace education class for in-service and pre-service teachers. And so some of the modules and resources that we use and conversations and questions that we've asked each other on this topic are on that website. And I started collaborating with my colleague, Arthur Romano, who teaches at George Mason University, Mm because he teaches peace education and conflict resolution. So some of the more recent posts on there are actually from his um, students and his classes. And so there's a lot of great content on there, just if you want to peek into a world of practitioners and educators who are are doing peace education work so that's another good place to go and then um yeah i mean i'm on instagram but if i don't know you i probably won't <laughs> all, uh, probably won't accept um and then i'm on twitter but not at, also at darren cambridge it's all darren cambridge across all social media um i'm not a big uh not as big of a Twitter person as I used to be, but, but I'm, I'm still, still on there. So those are some places that that you could go. I I will say one, one more thing just on Mm -hmm. your point about the root causes. And it's an image that I'd like to maybe leave listeners with um, because I've given a couple of talks to uh, educators and professors um, at community college, primary community colleges, primarily who are interested in starting a peace education program. Mm -hmm. Um, in some form or another. And so it's kind of just like an intro to to peace studies and what are some of those, you know, as this podcast um, speaks to like kind of core concepts to just start you on, on your exploration. And so we talked about positive peace and negative peace and direct violence versus structural violence. And the image that I always show is that of a cave. And I think when people think about a cave, the images that they normally think of are: you walk into these this cavern, and there's these stalactites that are coming down from the ceiling, and the stalagmites that are coming up from the ground, and you have to figure out how to navigate your way around all these rock formations. Um, and negative piece the approach is: well, how do I go in there and like knock all of these um, stalactites and stalagmites out of the way to create a smooth path that you know um, is is you know safer. But at a certain amount of time, stalactites and stalagmites form because there's these larger systems of water and tributaries that feed down into the cavern and drip by drip by drip by drip, it changes the formation of the rock. And so that negative piece approaches, sure, like you can suspend students, you can put people in jail, you can um, put fences around your house. I even use the example of you can assassinate people, right? I mean, that's the, you know, when it came to, fighting terrorism the the, the tact was how do we increase peace in this world and our fight against terrorism is you just go out and kill people who are dangerous um but when you pan out and you actually see the geology of all this you realize sure maybe temporarily that might do something Mm -hmm. but there's still a system that's feeding into creating those those caves so Mm -hmm. that's that's you know begins a conversation on looking at more positive peace approaches um, so I think that's like a, a key element too. And I think that's where nonviolence comes in is that sure you can wage violent conflict, um, and maybe have a quote unquote victory at certain points. Um, but at the end of the day, healing, healing is what's important.
1: Right? I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Yeah. Healing. <laughs> healing. We've just had, we've coming. had a lot of yeah. podcasts where people have used that word. So, I mean, it's, it's great. It's a, it's healing needs to happen. That that's, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Darren. It was a fantastic conversation and I can't wait to look up all the resources that you suggested and shared.
1: Yeah, thanks for
0: for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning the Transfers.